Thanks for tuning in to the For Love of the Game podcast, where we uncover the most cherished stories of America's favorite pastime. Woven into the DNA of our country are tales from our backyards and sandlots, summer leagues to the big leagues. Every fan has a personal connection, a memory, resonating in each of us. It takes us on a journey to a time long forgotten, or a moment in our youth. That first time we heard the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the fresh cut grass. And these cherished recollections sit there in the back of our minds beckoning us back to the game that we know and love, our reason to come back home, our reason for our love of the game. Today we have a special guest joining the show, lifelong baseball enthusiast and Roger Maris's most faithful and loyal fan, Mr. Andy Strasberg. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jim. So Andy, you have such a unique story and so many moments in your life seem to be scripted right out of a movie. I'm curious, where did your love of baseball start for you? Uh, I think it started, uh, well, I know it started much like everybody else's and it was my dad. He was a huge baseball fan and he was the one who passed along that love to me and took me at a very early age uh, to my first baseball game. Uh, I was nine and we went to the polo grounds and uh, growing up in the Bronx, I had never seen um, so much green, green grass in all my life. Uh, You walk through the building of the polo grounds and you come out and you see this field. and, and the grass, uh, you, you, it was two times the word green because I, uh, it was so green. And, uh, you know, I never, I had never seen that much uh, of a field because where I grew up, it was uh, building concrete uh, and streets. Yeah, the concrete jungle and then going and, and seeing that that's to, to this day, that's probably one of the coolest things about attending a baseball game for me, too, um, is walking through the tunnel and seeing the grass for the first time. It's, it still gives me the, the, the thrill of, of just being there. Um, and that's that's pretty cool. You got to attend the polo grounds before the, the Giants jump jump ship to to California there. And it was kind of the golden era of baseball in New York when you had the, the Dodgers, Giants, and, and Yankees there. Um, so in, I guess, December of 59, uh, a trade took place that I would say altered your fanhood for, for life. The, the Kansas City Athletics sent Roger Maris to New York. As a, as, a, as a kid, what drew you to Roger Maris? Well, there were a number of things, and probably the uh, the number one thing uh, had to do with the fact that uh, all my friends, uh, without question, loved Mickey Mantle, and uh, I did not want to share uh, whoever player that I selected as being my favorite. So I was always searching for a uh, a player that I can call my own. And uh, when Roger Maris was traded from Kansas City to, to New York, Sport Magazine actually came out with a, uh, an article and it said, Roger Maris rejuvenates the Yankees. And I was 12 years old and I'm embarrassed to tell you that I, I didn't know what the word rejuvenated meant. And I looked it up and I thought, how is it possible that one, one player can make a team youthful and 
and full of energy. And um, so I started to watch Maris in 1960 in his first game with the Yankees, uh, a couple of home runs, a double was up in Fenway Park. And so he impressed me. Uh, but keep in mind now, uh, no one else wanted him as their favorite player because everybody was in love with Mickey Mantle. And uh, so I started watching in 1960. And as a result of Maris's uh, great season, he received the most valuable player in the American League. And so I thought, yeah, this will be my guy. And, uh, and then in 1961, uh, it was the greatest summer of my youth. Uh, as you know, Mantle and Maris competed uh, the ghost of Babe Ruth for the home run record, single season home run record. And uh, Maris, that was, that was my guy. Yeah. And he, he must have seemed like a, a super, uh, you know, Superman to you. I mean, coming over in, in 60, winning the MVP and then doing what he did in 61. And you were 12 years old at the time. I, I he was, but he, he was, um, he, you know, there were he had other things that attracted me. Um, his frankness um, really appealed to me. Uh, his ability, not only to hit home runs, but to run the bases, to break up double plays, uh, to make outstanding catches, uh, to throw runners out. Um, plus, he was described as by his teammates as being unselfish. And I had never heard that term before. And, uh, and then they also described him as being a family man. So there were a number of boxes to check off. And I know that everyone thinks it was the home runs. Uh, it wasn't just home runs. He had, in my opinion, the full package. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just those intangibles that, that you speak of that don't show up in the box score. Um, that, that certainly, I, I would agree with you 100%. And that's why growing up, I really enjoyed watching Paul O'Neill play. You know, it was the same type of, of player. Um, who just went out there and, and got after it and similar similar traits to, to Thurman Munson as well I know a lot of, that's why a lot of people like him too um, so you you eventually you know you're, you're watching him on TV um, you're, you're going to a few games and eventually you end up having a, a personal relationship with him how did that start well in 1960 and uh, 61 my parents had a restriction that if I went to a game, uh, I had to go with a chaperone, an adult chaperone. So uh, in 1961, I only went to three games and those games we got there maybe at the most 15 minutes before the game. And as soon as the game was over, we left. Uh, in 1962, I was 14 years old and it was no longer a restriction that I had to go with a chaperone. And I went to 40 games, 4-0, uh, which is a little bit more than the three games I went to in 1961. And I would get to the ballpark uh, for a uh, two o'clock game. I would get there uh, probably around 10, 10.30 in the morning. And uh, the purpose and the intent was I wanted to get players autographs. But what I really wanted was to meet Roger Maris. And it's interesting because 
when Roger parked his car and then walked across the street to Yankee Stadium, I, I was tongue-tied. I, I couldn't say anything. And so eventually I figured out the best way for me to communicate with uh, Roger Maris would be to write him a note. And uh, so while all the kids were gathered around him trying to get an autograph, I wouldn't say anything and I'd just hand him a note. And in the note, I would say something along the lines of, you're, you're a great player, I watch you, I'm your most loyal fan, yesterday was a good game. I, I would recap whatever happened the day before. It got to the point, uh, Jim, that when he would get out of his car and he'd see everybody, he'd actually reach over the fans looking for my note, take it, put it in his pocket and walk into the ballpark. So uh, he started to get to know me, he didn't know my name, but he started to recognize me. And uh, I, I think that was one of my traits was being persistent. And as soon as the gates went up in, uh, at 11 o'clock, I would run out to right field and there I was watching Roger Maris uh, take fly balls and, and practice. And I would just sit there and I was uh, quietly consistent and persistent. That, that's unbelievable. That's so cool too. Um, and, and from Roger's perspective, that note must've meant a lot to him too, because you know, playing in New York, sometimes the New York fan base is, is pretty rough and, and can be brutal at times. So I'm sure that was a little uh, bright spot in his day. So that, that's such a cool story. And, um, when, and when he would strike out and everyone would boo and he'd end the inning by striking out, he'd come running out to right field and I would stand up and I would yell, don't worry, Raj, we'll get them next time. I'm still here rooting for you. So I made sure that I stood out. That's awesome. He always had someone in his corner. That's fantastic. How, how many games do you think you went to from, I guess, when you were 14 there until you graduated high school? Oh, I, I averaged probably for uh, three, four, five years, probably 40 games a year. Wow. So you saw a lot of baseball in Yankee Stadium. That's pretty cool. Um, and, and eventually, unfortunately, Raj would end up getting traded to St. Louis um, and you had ended up going to, to college. It was kind of an end of an era, beginning of a new chapter for both of you guys. Um, and I want to talk about May 9th, 1967. Um, another one of those kind of silver screen moments for you. Um, you ended up attending a game in Pittsburgh at Forbes Field. Can you talk me and walk, walk the listeners through that day and, and how you actually ended up there and, and what happened that day? Well, I was going to Akron University and I had put a poster of Roger Maris over my bed uh, in the dorm. Uh, and my roommate, and to this day, I still don't know what was going through his mind. He had a poster over his bed, but it was of Raquel Welch from the movie One Million BC. Um, and I'm telling everybody, I'm bragging to everybody that Roger Maris and I are good friends. And uh, by the time I had graduated from high school, he knew my name. And uh, because I was consistent and I was always there and I was always talking to him uh, before the game, before the gates opened up and during batting practice. 
And I asked Roger uh, for a home run bat and a home run baseball. And this was 1965. And his answer was priceless. He said, as far as the home run uh, baseball, you're going to have to catch it. But he said, the next time I crack a bat, I'll give it to you. And uh, the Yankees went on to, uh, to, to Anaheim or to California to play the Angels. And uh, on that road trip, he did crack a bat. And when they came in off the road trip, he came to me uh, in the stands. He said, I've got that bat for you. And, um, you know, I couldn't believe that it was a confirmation of a promise that my hero had made to me. Um, and that was 65 and 66, I graduate. 67, I'm going to Akron University, as I said, telling everybody that I'm good friends with Maris. He gets traded from the Yankees to the Cardinals. And one of the guys at college notices that the Cardinals be playing the Pirates in uh, Forbes Field. And he says, hey, Andy, you're good friends with Maris. Why don't you, why don't we go out there and you can uh, introduce us? And I said, oh, okay. And I was a little bit nervous. And, uh, and the reason being is Maris had never seen me other than at Yankee Stadium. So we drive from Akron to Pittsburgh. It's about two and a half hours. And I got four guys from college. And we get in to Forbes Field and there's Roger warming up in front of the Cardinal dugout, the visiting dugout. And he's wearing same number, nine, but this one's red because he's a member of the Cardinals. And I got my buddies behind me and I, I go up to the fence and very hesitantly, I say, uh, Raj, R Raj. And he turns around, he looks at me and he goes, Andy Strasburg, what the hell are you doing here in Pittsburgh? And I said, well, Raj, I've got some buddies from college that wanted to meet you. And uh, they lined up as if it was a wedding reception. And I introduced them and uh, wished him good luck. And uh, the game was about to begin. And so I needed to find a seat. Now, like a lot of baseball fans, I have a lot of superstitions. But the biggest superstition I have is the number nine. And Roger Maris's number is nine. And he plays right field. And if you score in baseball, that's also uh, indicated by the number nine. Um, and I went and I sat in right field in row nine, seat nine. And as you mentioned, it was May 9th. In the sixth inning, Roger Maris got up uh, against Woody Fryman and hit his first National League home run. I caught the ball. And my friends went crazy and I just couldn't believe it. And Raj came out and uh, he said, I don't believe it. And I said, you don't believe it. And uh, there, there's something indescribable, indescribable uh, when something like that happens in baseball. And I'm not going to say that it happens often, but I've had a lot of close similar experiences, but that is the number one wish come true. That's, and I do understand, very hard to believe. Yeah, it, it, it's incredible. I mean, you, you can't write a better story, even, even if you tried. Like I said, I, <laughs> right out of Hollywood with, with that one, you know? Um, 
and, and then eventually, so Rogers last season, 68, um, in, in your, uh, play that's baseball, um, which folks can go view. Um, I believe that's on Vimeo. You mentioned, um, being at his last game and you, you said something along the lines of, you know, as he's running off the field, that there goes my childhood, you know, my, my childhood is ending. And, um, that, that really hit close to me. Um, you know, it's totally di different situation, but I can remember, um, af after our last game in college, staring at my cleats in the locker and, and feeling that, that same feeling of, wow, you know, I, this chapter in my life is over it, it, time to time to move on. And, um, just so relatable and, um, just, uh, certainly <laughs> puts a sinking feeling in your stomach, but, uh, your, your baseball, your, your life in baseball didn't end there. You, uh, eventually, uh, got your start with the Padres. How did, how did that happen? Well, it only took four years and, uh, three trips around the United States. It was pretty easy. Um, I wrote letters to every team and I was again, persistent and, I, I would not let go of the dream. And I know that my parents were supportive, but I think that they were embarrassed with a degree in uh, uh, English literature. I had graduated with honors and I'm not working and I'm trying to find a job in baseball. And then fortunately things started to happen. Once I figured out, and for anybody who's listening, who wants to know the difference of how to find a job, don't try to find a job as an emotional baseball fan. It's very, very hard. I'm not saying it's impossible, but the best method to use is to have the mindset of um, that you're a fan of the business of baseball. And once I figured that out, uh, things started to go in the right direction. And I was uh, given an opportunity. I was made an offer uh, to work for the Padres. And I remember I, I went into that meeting. It was the third interview. And I, I had a sense that I was going to be given an opportunity. And Elton Schiller, who, by the way, is the smartest man uh, to ever have worked in baseball because he hired me. He said to me, uh, how much money are we talking about to get you to work for the Padres? And I had figured that a number of people had said that they would work for minimum wage and maybe some would work for free. And I had to separate myself from that pack. And so I said to Elton Schiller, the most I could pay the Padres was $100 a month. And in 1975, I was given the opportunity to work for the San Diego Padres and working for them lasted 22 years. Wow. That's awesome. And, and eventually to work your, your way up to the VP of marketing position um, and baseball and promotions and sponsorships just go hand in hand together. What were some of your favorite uh, promotions during, during your time? Uh, my number one favorite promotion was the team winning. That, that certainly helps, <laughs> especially in San Diego. I guess uh, 
uh, it didn't happen as often as you would have liked to <laughs> back then. But I was a lot smarter when the team won. Uh, things worked a lot better every time that uh, there was a W on the scoreboard. Uh, now, I had a, a wonderful opportunities, and I have asked my boss, uh, my bosses over the years, why they permitted me to do whatever I wanted to. I mean, that's to me, that's incomprehensible. Uh, I had a free hand and their answer was, because we trusted you. And we knew that you understood what the role, what your responsibilities were and the role that you played. And um, probably a, a way to explain that would be the San Diego chicken. And having the San Diego chicken as an entertainer he recognized that he was not bigger than the ball game and he never stepped in front of the ball game. In fact, he stopped uh, performing during a ball game around the eighth inning and because he knew that the eighth and ninth, that they're there to watch the game. But he also realized they're there to be entertained when there's downtime, uh, inning breaks. And so, he made me a lot smarter also. Uh, he was, uh, Ted Giannoulis was an enormous talent and he was very receptive to a number of my ideas and incorporated them. And the number one idea that worked for him was uh, I'm a big fan uh, of uh, Daffy Duck. I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan of cartoons and uh, one day I was driving home from the ballpark and the traffic uh, was stopped on both, going both directions. And I didn't understand what was going on. And, and so I got out of my car and I looked and there was this mother duck escorting her little baby chicks across the road and traffic in both directions stopped. And it, as soon as I saw that, I thought that's a gag for the San Diego chicken. And when I called him and told him, he immediately got on it, made little costumes of chickens. And uh, uh, he tells me that's the number one requested gag that he does when he appears all over the world. That's too funny. It's, it's so cool because in, in baseball, you can have ideas like that and somehow intertwine them with, with your job and, and in the game. Um, and it certainly makes your job a, a lot more fun to kind of, like you said, be able to have that, that free, free range and to really um, just hone in your, your creativeness and, and, and anything goes. Um, that definitely makes uh, th those 22 years, I'm sure, uh, seem like they, they flew by. Are there any moments that really just stick out into your mind that, that are just unforgettable? Well, I, I'm going to go back to the, the chicken. Um, when he changed costumes, we had a grand hatching. And uh, again, his popularity uh, was what motivated the, for the ballpark to be sold out. Uh, there were some other things that took place uh, that absolutely helped. Um, but yeah, him, uh, the, the chicken coming out of a, uh, seven foot tall styrofoam egg, uh, at third base, uh, we delayed the game 
uh, about 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, there, you know, I, I came up with the idea of uh, uh, Beach Boys uh, playing a concert and, uh, and the, the story, the quick story on that was, I wondered if we could get the Beach Boys to play after a Padres game. And uh, I put together a pro forma, I sent it to my boss, he took a look at it. And in, the, in my pro forma, I had budgeted $75,000 to, to pay the, uh, the Beach Boys. And uh, I then called up their management and I explained to them what I was looking to do. And their manager laughed at me and he says, you don't have enough money. And I said, well, how much money would it cost to have the Beach Boys play? And he said, $50,000. And I said, oh, I'm interested. <laughs> so it, it worked out and we sold out. It became a tradition in San Diego. And then post-game concerts traveled all around the country. So I take a lot of pride uh, in that. But there's different, uh, you know, throughout my career, again, giving credit to my bosses that gave me free uh, free hand to do what I wanted. Um, I was very fortunate. And uh, did I make mistakes? Yeah, I made mistakes. In fact, uh, I was, uh, this was in the late 80s. And I'm sitting with the president of the ball club, Dick Freeman. And uh, it's an afternoon Sunday game. And we're in his skybox. And I see him writing notes on the right hand side. And I'm sitting on his left hand side. And I'm thinking, wow, he is so smart and he sees things and he's making notes so that he can go over uh, something that's taking place. Maybe the scoreboard, the PA, uh, the concessions, the ushers, the ground crew. He's making notes. And I, boy, I would love to see what those notes are. And about the fifth inning, he takes that piece of paper and he slides it over in front of me. And I take a look at it. <laughs> And he, and I said, what's this? And he said, what do you think it is? Oh, I said, these are 10 of my biggest failures. What, what are you doing? And he said, and why do you think I'm showing this to you? And I said, I have no idea, I, I, I'm embarrassed. He said, that's the reason why you were successful. And so I said, you're gonna have to explain that to me. And he went on to tell me that I wasn't afraid to fail. And that is so unique, I think, in work, that you have a boss that recognizes your ability not to be afraid to fail. And I turned it around real quickly. And I said, the reason why I wasn't afraid to fail is because I knew you had my back. I knew. I was not going to get fired as a result of a failure. And so the, the compliment actually goes to Dick Freeman. That's, that's pretty special. And what a unique um, learning moment um, and just, just an experience to have your boss um, talk to you about, about that. Um, and if there's anyone listening right now who, who's in charge of employees or um, even just working out there on your own, that, that's such great advice. You know, don't be afraid to fail. Um, eventually, uh, after 22 seasons, um, uh, your relationship with the Padres ends. You start your own marketing firm. 
Um, in 2000, you receive a very unique phone call. Um, Ross Greenberg with HBO Sports calls you and asks you to be a technical consultant for the movie 61. Uh, what was your initial reaction to that phone call? Uh, it, well, first of all, when he called, I did, I did not know that Ross Greenberg was the vice president of uh, HBO Sports or the president of HBO Sports. And he left a message saying, uh, when you get a chance, give me a call back. And he had a uh, New York City, Manhattan area code 212. And so I called him back, not knowing uh, what his job was or what he was interested in. And the first thing he said to me, do you have any idea why I called you? And I said, yeah, Ross, I figured it out. You're with HBO. You, you want me to try HBO for 30 days to see if I like it. And if I do, then you want me to uh, to sign up and pay a monthly fee. Fortunately, he laughed and then told me, no, we want to hire you as a technical consultant. Uh, HBO just hired Billy Crystal to direct the movie about Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle in the summer of 61. And uh, we'd like you to come on board. And I was dumbfounded. Uh, this was made for me. And uh, I said to him, if, uh, if I get the approval from Pat Maris, I'm, I'm on board. And Pat said, absolutely. And uh, for me, it was time travel. I got to be 13 years old all over again. Um, and to work with Billy Crystal, to work on a movie project, uh, and then to go back in time. So I had a number of different things happening which were exciting, thrilling, and, uh, and you often hear people say once in a lifetime. Well, 1961, this was the second time for me to experience it. And so I knew what I wanted to see and where I wanted to go. That's pretty cool. And you, we, many people know Billy Crystal, huge Mantle fan. So you two, um, what, you know, what was that relationship like? Were, were there a lot of baseball fans on set Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of well, a lot of uh, Billy Crystal fans were on set. I asked, and the crew uh, just admired and loved Billy, and they had opportunities to work on other sets and make more money. But they wanted to work with Billy because of his leadership, his uh, sensitivity, his understanding, his compassion. So. Uh, Yes, there were baseball fans, there were Billy Crystal fans, and uh, it, was, it was fun every day, it was fun. Now, Billy was not on set to entertain. Billy was the director, he was the guy who was in charge. Um, and I quickly realized how hard he was working. And you know, the movie, uh, uh, the process of making a movie sometimes would start at seven o'clock in the morning and we'd be over at 11 o'clock at night. And then I found out that after 11 o'clock, Billy would watch uh, some, of the, uh, some of the takes that were uh, filmed that day. And so he spent a lot of hard, hard time working on the movie. And, I, and I, to me, it's, I can't be objective, but I, I think it worked out great. In fact, uh, I have uh, run into Billy a number of times since the movie came out. And I really do believe this. Not only does the movie hold up, I think the movie actually gets better with time. 
I, there are certain parts of it that just work better and better as we get away from the year that it came out, 2001. Wow. And so you're a technical consultant. Um, were there any scenes in particular where you can look back and say, you know, I, I had a particular role in this or, you know, I, I was a major influence on, on this part of the movie? Well, I was very, very hesitant to speak up. And uh, at one particular point, and you know that a, uh, a movie is shot out of sequence. So early on, they had a, uh, the scene was Roger Maris coming to visit Mickey Mantle in the hospital the evening of the day that he hit his 61st home run. So again, this is not in the order of how it happened. And I'm sitting and pretty overwhelmed and intimidated by the whole process, the movie process. And at one point in that scene, uh, Barry Pepper, who plays Maris, says to Thomas Jane, who plays Mantle, uh, they start talking about the pitch. And uh, Mantle, I'll use their players' names, uh, Mantle said, well, what did you hit? And uh, Maris says uh, fastball, and he said it wasn't fast enough, and, uh, or he said it was a curveball. That's, I'm sorry, I'm giving you the real line. He originally said it was a curveball, and he said it didn't curve enough. And then Billy said cut. And I said very quietly, uh, it wasn't a curveball, it was a fastball. And everyone looked at me and said, what? And I said, yeah, the pitch was a fastball. And um, next thing I know, they're shooting the scene over and they're doing the correct terminology for the pitch. And then Ross Greenberg came over to me and he said, Andy, that's why you're here. Well, that gave me a lot of comfort to know that I should speak up. So I'm gonna take you to, towards the end of the filming, we were in Detroit and they're actually gonna film Sal Durante, the fan who caught Maris's 61st home run, and it was an actor playing Sal. And uh, I'm sitting next to Billy Crystal and they're shooting it. And I, I see a number of mistakes. And I, after the scene is shot, I said, well, you, now I've got confidence, maybe too much confidence. And I said, well, first of all, um, Sal Durante actually stood on his chair on his seat at Yankee Stadium. And he caught it uh, with his right hand, bare hand up. And in the movie, he's standing on the uh, cement in right field and he catches it with two hands. So I bring this to Billy's, I bring this to Billy's uh, attention and he's tired. And, I, and he just says, Andy, we're trying our best here. Thank you very much. Artistic license, don't worry about it. So it, it was not changed and the movie was shot with uh, the way that they wanted it shot as opposed to how it really happened. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, and you actually got another once in a lifetime opportunity to be in the movie too, correct? Yeah, uh, uh, Billy offered me, he asked me if I wanted a cameo in the movie and uh, yeah. And he said, how would you like to be an umpire? And I said, not interested. And he gave me a look, I was startled that I would say that. And very quickly I said, 
Billy, do you have a video of when Maris actually hit his 61st home run? I said, yeah, I've got one in my trailer. So I said, let me take a look and show you what I'm interested in. And so we go to his trailer, he hits play, and it's a news clip of Maris hitting a 61st home run. And when Roger comes in to home plate, there's the next batter, Yogi Berra, and the bat boy, Frankie Prudenti. And uh, Roger shakes hands uh, with both of them, steps on home plate, and is on his way to the dugout. One fan, probably about 18 years old or so, comes out of the stands and very politely shakes Maris's hand and pats him on the back. And I said to Billy, when I was 13, I wanted to play, I wanted to be that kid. Now I'm 52 years old. I still want to play and be that kid. And Billy said, that's the part you'll have in the movie. And so, yeah, I, I got a, uh, a cameo and even got a credit line uh, when they rolled at the end of the movie. Uh, it was called, I think it was called 61 Home Run uh, Fan. So yeah, I'm in the movie. That's awesome. And what a, what a cool and unique kind of full circle moment to, um, to, to just put the, the cherry on top with that experience. That's so cool. So we're, we're gonna um, switch gears a little bit here. We'll move into some rapid fire questions uh, to, to uh, take us to the, to the end of the interview. So I'll list a few things and then just name the first, first thing that pops into your head. So we'll go favorite ballpark food. Uh, the sandwiches in 1962 that were sold uh, third base at Yankee Stadium. Okay. It was a roast beef uh, sandwich. Roast beef. All right. Um, what about favorite baseball movie besides 61? Uh, Stealing Home with Mark Harmon and Jodie Foster. Not a, lot of peop- not a lot of people have seen that movie. It's a fabulous movie. Okay. Yeah, that's that's not on my list, so I'll, I'll have to uh, I have to add it to the to the repertoire. And then um, and, do me, and do me a favor, and I'm I'm turning this around. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people ask me my favorite baseball song, and uh, I co-authored with uh, two other gentlemen uh, the story of "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Um, so it's obvious that that's my favorite uh, baseball song. But my second favorite baseball song is um, by Claire Hamill, it's called Baseball Blues. Fabulous song. So after, if anyone's interested in watching uh, Stealing Home, then listen to the, uh, listen to the uh, recording of Baseball Blues by Claire Hamill. Okay, I'll have, I'll have to do that later. Um, what about, this might be a tough one for you. Favorite card in your collection? A favorite baseball card in my yeah. collection? Uh, well, the 62 Maris was uh, my favorite card, and that's because I figured out how to break the uh, TOPS system of determining uh, the packs that the cards were in. Um, uh, cards in 1962 came in cellophane packs, and so uh, you could see on the top, it was obvious if it was Maris, but if it was on the bottom, it was also obvious that you're going to get a Maris card. Well, I had figured out that uh, if Maris is on the bottom, all I had to do is memorize the 11 players in front of Maris 
And I broke the system because they were put together uh, in a factory. And so I got a lot of Roger Maris cards from 1962 because I knew if one of those 11 players were on top, Maris is going to be in there. That's so cool. <laughs> I know that my uh, my friend used to do something similar because nowadays they put the jersey cards and the back cards in there. So he, he used to 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 feel in there, and somehow he could tell when one had a, a jersey or a, a baseball um, or a piece of the bat in there. Um, what about your favorite MLB jersey of all time? Other than the Yankee pinstripes? Yeah, I guess second second favorite. <laughs> Uh, uh, St. Louis Cardinals, and, and not just because of Roger Maris. I just think the Cardinal uniform with the birds on the bat—that's sweet. Yeah, that's a good one. They got—they have such a tremendous organization too. A um, lot of lot of fantastic baseball fans in St. Louis. Um, how about one pitcher you would like to face if you could hit off a of one pitcher in MLB history? <laughs> I actually. It just sounds so self-serving and selfish. Um, Tom House. Now, Tom is the left-hander who caught Hank Aaron's 715th home run in Atlanta. And I got to be friends with Tom House. And uh, Tom would, uh, on my birthday, he'd pitch to me. And so... That's the guy I would love to hit against, and I have for since 1975. Uh, we've done it every year, wow. and he lives that's, in San Diego, which helps. Yeah, that's pretty special. And yeah, you've seen him seen him a couple times, so you're a little comfortable stepping up to the plate against Tom. Oh, but he's but he's got my number. He knows he knows how to pitch to me, and uh, the first time I stepped in against him, I said, Tom. Your job is to hit my bat when I swing. And he did. And then I got cocky because he was hitting my bat. And I said, okay, now pitch to me as if you're trying to get me out. Well, there was no contest. Left-hander, screwball. Uh, I don't even, it's depressing. <laughs> I, tell, I, still, I still say hitting a baseball is probably the hardest thing in, in sports, in professional sports. Um, what about uh, if you had one baseball superpower, what would it be? You mean to hit home runs? Is that, uh, I, I mean, I would love the uh, ability to be able to drive a ball over the fence. Uh, you know, at, at, when I worked for the Padres, instead of having lunch, I would go uh, down onto the field with a couple of other employees and we'd play. And we would take advantage of the situation. And after a Sunday day game, um, I would play uh, baseball and I was never able to hit one out. Came close to the warning track, but never was able to hit one out. So if I had the reasonable power to be able to hit a ball out of the ballpark, that's what I would love. Yeah, that that would be cool to see that ball take flight, standing at home, and just watch it soar over the fence. I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, and how about we'll end it with the extra innings question? Um, I know you you got to relive the '61 season, which is probably one of the most 
uh, iconic seasons in MLB history. Um, but what if you, you get to go back in time and experience any moment in baseball history from any point of view? So it could be a player, fan, coach. What game are you going to and whose point of view are, are you witnessing that moment from? Well, I would love to have been uh, in Baltimore when Roger played in the 154th game of the season and he had 58 home runs and he needed obviously uh, two to, uh, to tie the record, three to break it. And uh, there were so many things that were going on. The Yankees were gonna clinch the pennant. That was their hope. Um, there was a hurricane off the coast of Baltimore that uh, absolutely played a role in uh, pushing at least one of the fly balls that Roger hit back onto the field. But Roger did hit his 59th. And you know, a lot of people would think that number 60 and 61 I, I would love to have been there. To me, the pressure was the 154th game and Maris hitting his 59th home run. And um, I would love to have been, I guess, a, uh, a bat boy at that time. So I know what was going on in the field and in the clubhouse. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, and during the, during the movie, uh, during the filming of 61, uh, as you can well imagine, I spent a lot of time in the Yankee clubhouse, uh, whether it was uh, when they were in Tiger Stadium or allegedly in Yankee Stadium, uh, because I knew that's where I wanted to be. So that's where I was. That's pretty cool. And what, what a special and, and unique opportunity to, to get to be there. Uh, well, Andy, this has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your interest and thanks for the opportunity. I love sharing uh, the story about my um, incredible experiences in baseball, but specifically about Roger Maris. That wraps up today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our podcast a like and share it with your friends. And if you have a baseball-related story to tell that you would like to have featured on the show, drop us a line in the comments, or you can send a direct message to our Facebook page. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, I'm Jim Tunison, and this is For Love of the Game.